Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. I'm going to continue this week along the same lines of last week's message, which is, uh, so that makes this a two-week interruption, uh, sort of, in the... uh, well, two more week interruption on, in the series on the gifts of the Spirit. Not the gifts of the Spirit, but on the Holy Spirit. We've had, I think, now ten messages on the Holy Spirit. Uh, we did nine, then we had two baptism weeks, then I did number ten, and then last week, if, if I'm remembering right anyway, maybe I, maybe I haven't gotten back onto this after baptism. I didn't go through my list. But I think that's what happened. I was going to get back onto the series of the Holy Spirit, and then we went a different direction last week. I still have definitely one and almost certainly two messages left in that series. But since Linda and Ver will be here next week, uh, and I won't, by the way, I'll be in Tulsa. Uh, the, I'm going down there for the ladies' conference. I'm going down there for uh, Refiner's Fire. Uh, my wife is going down there with two uh, ladies from Mercy's Refuge. And I got to thinking, you know, she was starting to dread the drive. And I said, I really wish I could go down there with you. She said, oh, I would love that. And I got to thinking in in the uh, nearly 26 years we've been married, I've been down there several times. She's been down there a handful of times. We've only been there together. We've only been in Tulsa once together, maybe twice. So I thought, well, maybe this is a good opportunity. I know there are several pastors uh, that go down there with their wives, and then I'll I'll have an opportunity to connect with some of them as well as some some, uh, dear friends and fellow ministers in Tulsa. So... I won't be here, and so Linda's kind of subbing for me. So there's one more interruption, and uh, it, regardless, I would be doing this message today, but timing-wise, it works out. Uh, I intend to wrap up that series on the Holy Spirit the Sunday, two weeks from today, but that's up to God too, right? So anyway, uh, the things that... Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, how many of you saw the Bonhoeffer play over the weekend? A lot of you did. Uh, I don't know, I haven't had a chance to talk to a lot of you, but it was great. It was a powerful message, powerful play, and uh, pretty, very well attended. It was, exci- it was exciting to have so many uh, different faces in here, and uh, very, very, uh, people expressed their gratitude, especially uh, the, the actors and the director and all, all the, the and, and Joe and... You know, Joe and Doug, who wrote the play, were just effusive in their gratitude and their appreciation for everything that we made available to them. Uh, so it was. It was a great opportunity to kind of just work alongside them. Uh, but part of what uh, that play, and I'll refer to it a little bit later on, it dovetails nicely, the message of that play dovetails nicely with what we were talking about last week and what we're going to talk about this week. Remember, uh, last week we talked about staying on mission keeping our eyes on the prize and remembering what we're here for. Who are we? We are ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors of the kingdom. We have a mission. What is it? We are here to facilitate reconciliation between man and God, starting from the premise that we are all separated from God by our sin, and it's only through the finished work of Jesus Christ that we can be in right standing and right relationship, reconciliation with God. And our whole mission in life is to bring that message of reconciliation to others, to take as many people with us to heaven as we can. And what's our motive? This should be easy. If we are in Christ, our primary motive has to be love, right? If we believe the Bible is true and that the only way of salvation is faith in the death and resurrection of Christ, how can we possibly say we love someone if we do not share that truth with them. I've referred to this before, and I'm sure many of you have seen it. There was a YouTube video. I'm I'm sure you still find it. Penn Gillette of Penn & Teller, the magic act, illusion act. Uh, Very, very talented guy, but also a very strident atheist. You know, very, he goes out of his way, I think, bends over backwards to say offensive things about religion and Christianity. Uh, as many people do. 
Uh, but he was sharing. It was just, you could tell, he just set up his phone in his hotel room or something, and he says, I just have to tell you something that, that just happened that, that just kind of knocked me for a loop. And he talked about how he was walking out of a show, walked out on the street, and a fan came up. He was signing a few autographs, and one guy came up, grabbed his hand, said, I love your act. I'm a big fan. I want you to have this, and thrust a Bible into his hand. And he said, and you know, at first I just kind of rolled my eyes. I don't believe in the Bible. I don't believe, the Bible. I don't believe in God. Uh, he says, and that nothing's going to change that. He says, but my, he says, I, and I'm paraphrasing here. I don't have this thing memorized. But he says, I, I, my first reaction was to, to be mad at this guy. But then I started thinking, this guy obviously does believe in God. And he does believe the Bible. And this guy thinks that if I don't believe that I'm going to burn in hell. And he likes me. For some reason, this guy loves me enough to put this Bible in my hand. He says, now, it didn't change anything. I still don't believe. But I got to thinking about all the people who do believe or say they believe. If you really believe I'm going to go to hell, if I don't believe in the gospel, how much do you have to hate somebody not to tell them that? How much do you have to hate somebody to not risk alienating them, offending them by what you, with what you believe to be true? And that, that's a good message for the world when people complain about, oh, it's, stop, you believe what you want, just try, stop trying to shove it down my throat. I'm not trying to shove it down your throat. But if I'm right, you are in danger. And I love you too much not to not tell you the truth. Jesus modeled this, of course, with his whole life perfectly. Everything he did was motivated by love. You know, we see this again and again. With the, Jesus did many, many miracles. And he taught everywhere he went. But one of the things he was most famous for, of course, was everywhere he went, he healed. He healed individuals, he healed the multitudes, and it tells us right there he was moved with compassion, compassion. It's important to know this because he didn't do this to prove he was the Messiah. We've been through that before again and again. We'll go through it again sometime, I'm sure, but not today. Maybe we'll get into it a little bit today. Uh, when someone says that, and I've heard it said by people that I, uh, that I otherwise admire. I'm not, I'm not going to throw away everything a minister says because he says one or two things I disagree with, but one of, the, one of my favorites over the years famously said, the whole purpose of the miracle in the Old and New Testament was as an apologetic. In other words, the only reason God ever worked miracles through anybody was simply to prove that he could, that he was God. Uh, and and this, uh, he was really making the case that this is why Jesus did miracles. But uh, when you look at the ministry of Jesus and people say the, the miracles Jesus did were God's stamp of approval on his ministry to validate the things that Jesus said. Did they serve that purpose? They did. Was that the primary reason Jesus did miracles? 100% categorically no. How do I know this? Because uh, we see in one instance, when he was around people who were a little too familiar with him, that says he could do no mighty work there. He couldn't do any mighty work. Why? Because of the unbelief of the people. More significantly is when, on the occasion when people came up to him and said, hey, prove you are the Messiah. Do a miracle. That's when he refused to do a miracle. Okay? It, it doesn't say he couldn't in that case. It says he would not. He said, what was his response? It's an evil generation that seeks after a sign. You want a sign? I'll give you one. Remember how Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights? Son of man's going to be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. Then you'll see. So he refused to do a miracle to prove he was the Messiah, I think that's pretty uh, obvious evidence that he didn't do miracles to prove he was the Messiah. That wasn't the purpose of the miracle. What was it? He loved people. When he healed, he was moved with compassion. 
he was moved with a strong conviction that what was wrong with these people shouldn't be wrong with these people because they were a... Remember, he ministered almost exclusively to Jews, to covenant people. He says, how can, how can this, should this daughter of Abraham remain bound in her condition even one more day? You're going to tell me I can't heal her on the Sabbath? She has a right to healing. It's not just that I feel sorry for her and... Uh, She's hurting, so I'll heal her. It's a right, a covenant right for her, and I'm here to enforce that. He was, it was, he was executing judgment on sickness and disease in the lives of God's people. So, uh, yeah, love was his motive. Love was his motive, we know, for enduring the cross. Let's read this out of Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before him. This is not the joy of the cross. The cross was supreme agony. You know where the word excruciating comes from, don't you? And if you're going to describe pain, that's probably the strongest word you can use. It's excruciating pain. That word means out of the cross. The joy was beyond the cross. He endured the cross because he could see beyond it. He could see that because of what he was doing, we, all of us, could be reconciled to God. The joy that was set before him was you, me, in right relationship with God, with him. That was his prime motive. Was there another motive for how Jesus lived and ministered? Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 41. This is uh, Jesus at Gethsemane before the crucifixion. Verse 41, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now here we see Jesus doing exactly what he said was his main purpose. The will of the Father. Now, this point is a little bit ticklish for some people because depending on the tradition they're steeped in, uh, some can see it as a challenge to the doctrine of the Trinity. And what I mean by that is since the, uh, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit are one and in perfect agreement, then at no time can any member of the Trinity exhibit or display any desire or will that, uh, is, that, that exhibits one iota of difference from any other member of the Trinity. And so when you say that, well, it wasn't at this moment, it does not appear to have been Jesus' will to go to the cross. Well, that, may, that puts him in, but he says, not my will, but your will be done. It's like we can't even imagine for a second. We are, we are impugning the doctrine of the Trinity if we, if we say that there was even a moment when Jesus' will was different from the Father's. But remember... Jesus ministered, he walked this earth as a man. He laid aside his godness, his glory, and walked this earth as a man without sin. This was the big difference. He had the spirit without measure, and he did not wrestle with the same things you and I did by nature. He was subject to the same temptations, but he did not have that... Uh, that proclivity that you and I are born with to succumb to those temptations. You understand? So he walked this earth as a, as a man with the, in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and as a man, he had a man's aversion to pain and torture. He wasn't saying, I changed my mind, Father. He said, if there's another way of doing this, let's talk about that. But... The main thing, the overwhelmingly main takeaway from this passage is, I'm only going to do what your will is. 
There's our example. Love was what motivated him, but his determination and his purpose was to do God's will, the will of the Father. And here we look at the difference between submission and agreement. Uh, any Ramah student will tell you that one of the most important and impactful classes you have to take as a first-year student is submission and authority, where you go through different levels and different manifestations of submission and authority. Who, biblically speaking, who is supposed to submit to who? And obviously, ultimately, we all submit to God. But there is a difference. People say, well, I'm submitted. I'm submitted to my wife. I'm submitted to my husband. I'm submitted to my brethren. I'm submitted to my boss. And it's easy as long as you're in agreement. But it's not the same thing. You don't know if you're in submission until you disagree and still recognize your responsibility to submit. I often joke, you've heard some of the horror stories. I've, uh, I've, I've tried to be, uh, I've not gone into a lot of specifics, but my first occupational ministry position at Canaan Land uh, was rewarding in many, many ways. I'll say it for the who knows how many of time. I wouldn't trade that experience for anything, but I wouldn't repeat it for anything. But I've also said this. I learned about submission and authority. I learned a lot about submission and authority at Ramah. I learned submission and authority at Canaan Land because I've never butt heads harder with a boss or had the opportunity to butt heads. I tried not to butt heads, but I never found myself in disagreement so many times and having to recognize this is my boss. This is the guy God called me to serve. It's his call, not mine. So Jesus in this case was operating in submission to the Father. And of course, he still had the love motive. He was still the joy that was set before him uh, was one of the things that enabled him to completely submit to the will of the Father and endure the ordeal of the cross. Uh, anyway, as we talked about last week, our goal is to be like Christ. And that means being dedicated to the will of God like Christ. Our focus last week, with a brief consideration of the 9-11 tragedy, uh, and by extension, the many tens of thousands of people who die and slip into eternity every single day uh, was the necessity of fulfilling the Great Commission. That's still our focus today, but we're going to focus on it from a different angle. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, we read, we looked at this not too long ago, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. Now that verse 13, we've, we've talked about that. Um, this work out your salvation, right? That's the same, that word work is kater God samai. That's, it's not work for your salvation. Salvation is in you when you confess Christ and the process of sanctification, of lordship, and being conformed to the image of Christ is working that salvation that's in you out so that it can affect the world around you. Um, but looking here at verse 13 for a second, before I come back, I jumped on the opportunity to drive me down there. They wanted to go down there, or interest in working with drug addicts for the simple reason I'd never been one. This wasn't part of the culture I grew up with. Did I know people who did drugs? Yeah. You know, people who had, uh, you know, occasionally done it. Uh, I knew of people who had been addicted to Illinois. I wanted to move to Alabama and work with druggies. That's how I know. Because God is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's easy. Yeah, it's God is at work in you to do for his good pleasure. That's a, hey, it's God says that you do. But he works in you. This is his kindness. He works in you to transform your... Trans and I still more or less reject it. She, the, the, the wife slash mother was writing this. She says, I hear all these stories about people who were called to the mission field and God just gave them a but he gave me the want to, gave me the desire to be there. 
And by the way, Philippians is such a great letter. If, you have, if, if it's been a while since you read it, go home and read it today. And it's such a blessing. Stuff that will challenge you. And stuff that, of course, will encourage you. But, verse 12, we talked about the work out your salvation, but this in fear and trembling, that should arrest you. Should really get your attention. Uh, we were taught, most of us at some point, uh, if you've been, in, uh, been a Christian long enough, you've looked at the Bible long enough, that when you see the fear of the Lord, fear God and keep his commandments, in fear and trembling, fear just means respect. It doesn't mean be afraid of God. Guess what? It means a little more than that. It absolutely does mean respect. And when we, when we emphasize, oh, no, it doesn't mean to be afraid of God, what we mean by that and what we should mean by that is don't picture God, and some people do. Don't picture God as a God who is up there with a big stick in his hand waiting for you to do one bad thing or have too much fun or something so he could go, aha, whack, smack you down. That is not his heart. But how many of you have had the perfect leader? Coach is probably a great example. One who drove you and pushed you to become because he saw something in you. He saw the potential. And he coach because you, but you love them. Really? Like three people? I'm so sorry for you guys. You've heard, people, you've heard people say it in civilian life and military life. I would follow that man through the gates of hell with gas, gasoline-soaked underwear. Christ they exist by a boss or a leader of any kind or a coach that you loved I'm afraid to say and it's one thing for, for somebody to call you out in the middle of a, of a class you know I'm thinking of some I was a little bit of a lazy student in my ROTC days but man when you got called into the office of the professor of military science and the first thing out of his mouth practically is the time for discussion has passed it jerks the slack out of you, no matter how much you admire this person. And the hurt comes from knowing you let somebody down that you admire. This, I think, God loves us. A house not made with hands, eternal. In the For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. He's talking about our glorified bodies, our heavenly eternal. For we who are in this tent, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and present, to be present. That's good news, right? This is what we preach. A good Christian funeral will remind us of that. As difficult as it is to lose someone, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Therefore, verse 9, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. Why? Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. There it is. Knowing while we are in this body, we're absent from the Lord. We'd be much more pleased to be absent from this body, be present with the Lord, knowing, therefore, that whether here or there, whether busy doing whatever we're doing now, or, or when this life is over, every one of us, he's talking about Christians. This is not the great white throne judgment. This is not uh, selecting those who are damned and those who are... Uh, called to eternal life. This, these are believers. Every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what we did in this body, in this life, with the gifts that he gave us. Well, I can't do everything that you do. I can't do everything that Billy Graham did. Uh-uh. He's not talking about what he gave somebody else. What did you do with God, what God gave you? We'll get there in a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. For we are God's 
we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as, though through, yet as through fire. I mentioned last week that I believe it is possible, and I think Scripture bears this out, that it is possible to be born of God and not know God. Meaning again, that I know people who, I personally know people who I'm convinced have confessed Jesus unto salvation, but they do not truly love Christ. And you can't know him without loving him. If you love him, you want to be able to stand before him on the day. And hear this, well done, my good and faithful servant. You don't want to be standing before him smelling like smoke and brushes, brushing the ashes off. Notice the wood, hay, and stubble. The fire doesn't burn sin away. This is not a reference to the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. The blood has taken care of the sin. We're supposed to lay those things aside. Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin, which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This fire burns away everything that does not endure, not just the sin. Again, the sin was dealt with by the blood, the cross. What are these weights? They are everything that competes with Christ for our attention, our loyalty, our energy, our resources. Doesn't mean we can't enjoy anything except Bible study and church and Christian fellowship. It means when you are willing to hang on to something that is impeding your progress in becoming like Christ, if you're not willing to let it go, that thing will drag you down. It becomes something made of wood, hay, or stubble that you have invested in. This is a building that we are all building. We're basically taking our house. This is a picture Paul's drawing, all right? And, and everything we've built with our life is going to be set before God, and the whole thing's going to be set on fire. This is a picture. It's an illustration. And all that's left that determines our eternal reward is what we did for him. That's what it means. That's part of what it means to lay up treasure in heaven. We need to be investing in the things that last forever. And I'm only thinking of a very few things. God lasts forever. God's word lasts forever. And people last forever. I can't think of anything else that is eternal by definition. If we want anything left when our life's work is tested by fire, we need to be sharing God and his word with people. Those are the three things that last. Notice again, it says here, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's one more way of nailing down this whole idea. You're not racing. You know, I, thought when I, was, I, I didn't use this illustration, but when we were talking about pleasing a boss, pleasing a teacher, a coach, a leader, whatever, uh, a lot of uh, young people particularly competing for grades, or maybe you're competing for a, a raise or something like that. Uh, have you ever gone through the selection process, you know, felt the pressure of, uh, you know, on selection day, the, the day that the choice, who gets this promotion, who gets this raise, who, get, who gets named valedictorian, and you fall short. This is where the illustration kind of breaks down, because I'm not competing with you. I'm running the race that is set before me. You're running the race that is set before you. I'm not in competition with you. I'm going to be measured not against what you did, but against what I did with what he gave me. 
And the best illustration of this, I share one more. Uh, well, before I get to it, let me, let, me, let me say a couple things about Bonhoeffer. Because this verse in Hebrew starts out with, since therefore, so this, in light of this great cloud of witnesses, this great cloud of witnesses. Now, who's the, what are the witnesses? He was talking about, in the previous chapter, the, the, what we call the Hall of Faith, all these great men and women of God who, who did so much, who believed so well, uh, and uh, even died uh, for their faith. And he said, we have this great cloud of witnesses, and it's easy to picture, and I don't buy this. I think it's a useful illustration, but I think a lot of people see this as, uh, well, we're in some sort of coliseum now. Uh, we're, those of us who are on the playing field are the ones who are on earth. We're the believers on earth, and the ones in the stands, they're the ones who've gone to heaven, these witnesses, these, these uh, heroes of, of the faith. And they're cheering us on, watching us. That's not the sense that, that they are witnessing. That word witness there is a legal term. And when you picture this, this judgment day, uh, it's always, it's funny. It's only, it, it's only almost funny to me. Uh, it's more ridiculous to me, and I get really, I don't feel funny, I feel mad when I hear people or read people say, uh, well, what are you going to say to God? You say you don't believe in God. What are you going to say if you find yourself standing before him someday? You know, and there, there, there are, there's no shortage of ridiculous answers to that. Uh, Bertrand Russell said, uh, well, I'll just tell him, you didn't give me enough evidence to believe in you. If you'd given me more evidence, I might have. Stephen Fry said, uh, I would say, I would look at him and say, bone cancer in children, how dare you? Now, I get it. I get what people are saying. I know people personally that I won't name who at this point would probably say, if you, if, uh, if you were real, uh, why did my life stink so bad? Why couldn't I do this? Why, did, why wasn't this better for me? Every, in other words, I've, got, I've had horrible life and none of it's my fault and you didn't do anything about it. I understand that there's evil and suffering in the world, but that's what irks me about a guy like Stephen Fry or Bertrand Russell when they say, you can't believe in God who is all good and all powerful. because if he's, They act like they're the first ones to realize this and that's been an issue for millennia. People have always had to deal with this tension. If God is all good and all powerful, why is, it, why is there evil and suffering in the world? There are answers to that question. I'm not going to answer them today. But trust me, people have wrestled with this for years, and it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. I am saying this. Uh, I am quite convinced that when that day comes and those people are standing before God, that's not going to sound anything like what comes out of their mouth. It'll be my God, my God, my God and it'll be too late. The Bonhoeffer play. If you weren't here, and if you don't know anything about Bonhoeffer, this was not a biographical, it was a biographical play, but it was not about his life. It was about one short season in his life when in the days uh, leading, just prior to Germany invading Poland and kicks in, kicking off World War II for real, uh, Bonhoeffer... Uh, accepted an invitation to come to the United States for a couple of years and lecture, uh, lecture and uh, speak and teach, and churches were clamoring for some of his time, and, and uh, a friend of his over here had made arrangements for him to tour seminaries and churches and, and whatnot and, and, and to write in relative safety. He was, on, he was already on the, the naughty list uh, for the Nazis as they were clamping down on the German church or controlling it and reinventing it. And, uh, and even his students had urged him, go, go to America where you can still write and be a voice for us and everything. And as, practically as soon as he got over here, he started wrestling with, is this what God wanted me to do? I know I can be effective here, but is it what God has called me to do? Do I have a right to be here in safety while my people including my students and the people that I've been a pastor to are trapped there who have to walk through this. Isn't my calling to walk through it with him? Now, here's what made it tough. He had people, mature believers, who were dear friends of his saying, Dietrich, 
you can do so much for God here in America. And they were 100% right. I wonder what he would have produced if he had lived into his 80s and worked here with all the support and all the resources. But that wasn't the issue for Bonhoeffer. If you walked away, you know, he was a great voice for truth and standing up for the truth, even against terrible opposition and, and even, uh, and depending on where he was, overwhelming, you know, the, 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 uh, whatever the zeitgeist was, which was Nazism in his, in his home country. But if you came away from that play thinking, oh, here's the message, I need to be even louder denouncing President Biden. And I need to be denying ever more that he won the election. Or, if you're flip side, I need to fight these, these Republic scams or the demon rats. Or I need to go get a Pritzker you-know-what sign for my yard because I need to be bolder like Bonhoeffer. You missed the point. The point was, what are you willing to do to obey God? He knew that going back to Germany was a huge risk to his life. And he could have easily justified staying here. The overriding concern was not what makes sense or what appears to do the most people the most good. It's what does God want me to do? In fact, what has God commanded me to do? So what's God telling you to do? How has he commanded you to live? One last parable now, and a couple more comments, and I'll close the message. Matthew 25. I'm going to read fast because it's a longish passage. Beginning in verse 14, this is Jesus speaking. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also the one who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Why didn't you make five more talents like the guy with the five talents? What was he judged by? what he did with what the master gave him. He said the exact same thing to the guy with two talents. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. Boy, right off the bat, you see how bad the logic is? Reaping where you didn't sow? Who gave him the talent? His master answered him and said, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. In other words, if he's not saying, Yeah, you're right, that's how I am. He said, That's what you really believed you could have at least put the talent somewhere where it would make money on his own if you weren't going to make money with it. So, take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I'm not going to break this parable down verse by verse. We don't have time. All I want to point out is that the servants, again, were not judged by their behavior that was due to some innate predisposition or charm or anything else. They were judged only on the basis of what they did with what the master gave them. You have been given gifts, every one of you. 
has something that God has given that he will absolutely demand a return on. You will have to give an account for it. Every relationship you have is a gift. If God puts you in the life of an unbeliever, he has called you to be his witness. Now, this needs to be organic. We don't meet somebody and say, ah, a target. My, uh, this is a, I see you. There's nothing more than a potential convert. No. What was Jesus' motive for healing people? Love, compassion. I meet somebody. I, I, I like him. I don't sit there and say, huh, do I want to like this person? I better find out if they're a believer first. If I like you, I like you. And I've had some deep friendships with stone atheists over the years. Great conversation. But because I love them, I never stop trying to convince them. It's not, well, this is my duty. Uh, or I guess I can't be friends with you. It's like, no, God put me in your life for a reason. Did I get saved every atheist friend I ever had? No, not by a long shot. But they knew I was a believer. They knew what I believed. Remember, if you really do care, this is what we say, it's not that I don't want to share my faith, it's just that I don't want to lose him as a friend. Do you know how selfish that is? Do you know how unloving that is? I'd rather you go to hell than me be unhappy for losing you as a friend. If I really care about this person, how can I not share the most important thing in my life? And that's what this all boils down to. And it brings us full circle back to this. Do I really love Jesus? Is he the most important thing in my life? Because that's the problem. We make our confession of salvation, but if we hide our light under a bushel, if we downplay our relationship with God in order to maintain a friendship or preserve a relationship with someone who is precious to us, then he is not the most important thing to us. And this is super important because God is not hanging that over your head just so he can use it against you or for you on judgment day. The whole point is that God loves them. He loves them more than you do. It can feel like a burden, but it is a privilege to be used by God to lead someone into eternity with him, to salvation. This is what God wants for them. More, you, you should want it for them more than anything, and God wants it more than you do. You are the one with the privilege of being the one he uses. And maybe, maybe what he uses you for is to plant a seed. Maybe what he uses you for is to water that seed. Or you might get to be the one that prays with them. That moment of salvation and the new birth. God is good when you think about these idiots who say these things about why would I serve a mean, capricious, judgmental God? Stop it. God is the one who made us. Does he have laws? Does he have rules? Yes. Why? Because he made us and knows what is going to fulfill us. Jesus promised an abundant life that these people we love and don't want to offend are not going to experience if they don't know him. He longs to fill us with those things. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Again, going back to what I said even before I started preaching this sermon, when I got saved, when I came to Christ, I did it to escape hell. And I still believe that's a legitimate reason for conversion. But if you stay there, in other words, I'm only going to do the bare minimum. I do believe he died for my sins. I'm not going to pretend not to believe that. I do believe it, and I'm going to confess him as Lord because I don't want to go to hell. But if that's where you stay for the rest of your Christian life, I'm not going to pursue him. I'm not going to get serious about this because then Christianity does become a burden. It's just a bunch of things I've got to do. I've got to walk this line. I can do this, go up to this edge, but any, just, just to stay out of hell. And if that worked, ultimately it would kind of be worth it, but what a waste. What an absolute waste not to enjoy the fullness of life in Christ not to experience the abundance of his promises. What's it say? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Praise and worship team, come back up here quick. Everybody else, you can stand up. If Christianity... 
I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because everything, every time I ask for a show of hands, I expect at least half the people to raise their hands and like three people do. Uh, and so it's discouraging. And since I don't want to identify with just three people, I won't say that I've ever experienced this. I will just say that some people I know have. I have. Has your Christianity, has your relationship with Christ, your identity as a Christian ever seemed like a drudgery? This is hard. Life is hard. We know that. But we can identify times in our life, if I weren't a Christian, this moment in life would be easier. We've got to be very, very careful in those moments. When those moments turn into days or weeks or in a season in our life, we need to pray like David. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. We've forgotten that. We've forgotten how happy it made us to know when we first learned that God had saved us. And he'll restore that joy. He'll make you realize this is not just about going to heaven versus going to hell. This is about living the life I made you for. You can try a million things and succeed at all of them, but they will ultimately leave you empty if it's not what I called you to. couple things, church. My first invitation is the most important one. If you have never made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, there is no other hope. He is not a truth. He's not an option. And I can't make you believe that, but young people, parents of young people, you need to nip it in the bud when somebody says, I believe, but that doesn't mean it's true for everybody. That is the most nonsensical, stupid statement. It's another one of those things I used to just kind of go, hmm, <laughs> now it just makes me mad. You might as well say, I believe two plus two equals four, but if, if it's five for somebody else, who am I to argue? Speaking of math, I've said this many times over the years. Mathematically speaking, if you just reduce it to a set of claims, it is mathematically possible for every religion in the world to be wrong. It is utterly impossible for every religion in the world to be right. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So if, Jesus, if Christianity is right, then every other religion is wrong. And if you're going to be bold enough to say every religion is right, you have to say, well, except Christianity, because Jesus wasn't telling the truth there. Well, why should I believe Jesus of all people? Because he rose from the dead, and we have excellent evidence of that. Don't buy into this lie. But, but, but science. How can I abandon science so I can be in faith? Brothers, sisters, Go look at what science is doing these days. It is moving almost inevitably to the point of we, the only way to explain this, from the biggest to the smallest. When we look at space, when we look at star formation, the movement of the stars, this only makes sense with a creator, the fine-tuning of the universe. Just 10, maybe 20 years ago, when I first heard about fine-tuning, there were like 23 specific things in the cosmos that had to be fine-tuned just so we could have not just in our solar system or even our galaxy in the universe all these interaction between forces have to be just right for there to be life now there's over 40 they keep identifying new things oh wow if this wasn't just right there wouldn't be earth there wouldn't be life on earth down to the smallest the cell how can you have these millions of lines of literal digital code on a strand of DNA, if somebody didn't write it there. It's intelligence. All these things, and that's why I love apologetics for, is it, it's all about removing these roadblocks to your faith. When deep down inside you know anyway, God is real. Life is forever. Where do you want to spend it? Who do you want to serve? Because you're going to serve somebody. Bob Dylan said so. 
you make up your mind maybe for the first time today. You're right. I've wasted enough time serving myself. I've wasted enough time serving the devil, serving the world, serving whoever. I want to serve Jesus. He's the only master worth serving. You want know, to give my life to him today. I'm going to give you that opportunity here in about 30 seconds. If you say, Scott, I'm like you. I prayed a prayer. I gave my life to Christ because I didn't want to go to heaven, but I've been a miserable Christian. I've never turned my back on him. I don't love him. I haven't pursued him, and I want to. Give your life back to him. Say, thanks for not letting go of me. I need, I'm going to start living. I'm going to start enjoying you. I'm going to start digging into your word so that I know you better. Recommit yourself to him today. And if you're not walking, you're like, I've, I've never not loved Jesus. I got saved a year ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago. And I love Jesus, but boy, it's such a struggle. I feel like I have no power. Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? That's what we've been talking about for 10 weeks plus. If you want to get saved, if you want to recommit your life, you want to receive the power that comes from the baptism of the Holy Spirit, come up here as soon as I am done praying. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for loving us, for being such a great Savior. I pray, Lord, God, I am asking you to do, Holy Spirit, asking you to do what only you can do, and that is to speak to every person in the sound of my voice about what you would have them to do now. Reveal yourself for who you are, convince and convict of the truth, and grant every person who has not made Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior the wisdom to recognize him for who he is the courage to come here and receive that gift of eternal life, the humility to recognize their need, and speak to every one of us, if you would have us to step it up, point out where we have, where we have allowed you, the God, the author of life, to even begin to appear to be a drudgery or a burden. Forgive us for that, Lord. Reanimate us, quicken us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.